welcome to the Daft Souls podcast. My name is Matt Lees and I'm joined by Keza McDonald. Hello. And Christopher Bratt. Hello. It's been just over a month since our first episode back into season two of this illustrious podcast. And we promised you last time that we would return with concrete structure, features, solidarity, ideas. And we haven't done it. But it's fine. We're going to do it in the future. I had so many ideas. Yeah. And then time happened. And I don't know what they were anymore. Entropy. The hype is real. But it's good. We, we will establish a good structure and format for this but it's fine no horse or dog comes fully out of the starting line ready to race that would be insane uh we must assemble our our, ourselves as we go like a kind of super metroid style dog slash horse um we have got some structure though in the fact that this time we are going to be talking a little bit about what chris is doing in an upcoming video and what he's done some of his recent videos because he's doing some top-notch journalism and obviously also in the field of top-notch journalism kez is going to be talking about stuff that she's been doing on the guardian and going into a bit of a deep dive on something of her choice which is going to be a surprise for you and a surprise for me (laughs) but first of all i know keza is biting at the Chomp. Is that a, is that a Biting phrase? at the chomp. She's chomping at the I'm bite. chomping at the bite. She's chomping at the bite. Yeah, there we go. Uh, chomping at something to talk about Hollow Knight. It's so good. It's so good. Well, Hollow Knight's one of those games that came out during the time I didn't have time for anything. And now that it's just come out on Switch, I appear to be discovering it alongside loads and loads of other people. I did have one friend say to me, you need to play Hollow Knight when it came out on PC. Mm-hmm. But the wonderful thing about playing games when they're released on Switch, which is now every game, incidentally, mm-hmm. there are so many... Like, actually too many now. Games coming out on Switch every week. I remember looking through for a... Um, I was doing a roundup of the best indie games on Switch in February. Mm-hmm. And there were kind of a few every week. And you looked at it once a month and you could still... You know, you didn't have to scroll too far before you got back to the stuff you recognised. And now there's just so... There's been there's been probably twice as many out in the last few months and to the year to date before that. The eShop on the Switch has kind of gone ballistic. It's in the early few weeks, it, it was you could just go on it and quite quickly find something that looked decent. And now it's like... It's very much into the Wii territory now, mm. just being like, hey, getting, look at all this random junk you can buy. It's getting towards Steam for me, where I'm like, I know one of these is probably amazing, <laughs> yeah. but I have no idea which, and I'll find out in a year. Yeah, but unlike Steam, everything is about 10 quid. Yeah. Yes, yes, there is that issue. I, I was about to um, I was about to jump into Hollow Knight because Annie is playing and enjoying it a lot, and just as I was ramping up to do that, everyone seems to be talking about Dead Cells now. Yeah, so I played Yoku's Island Express which is a kind of pinball Metroidvania. Yeah, it looks bizarre. I love it's it. really, oh, really fun. I've, yeah, I saw you writing about this, and it's, I yeah. really want to check that out. That ticks my Venn diagram. It is a quite great, perfectly. funny, cute, really beautiful. Uh, there's no combat in it. It's just puzzles and exploring, and it's just such a great music. And I just, I just devoured that in about a week. And then started straight on Hollow Knight. So now the idea of doing Dead Cells, I know Dead Cells are roguelike technically mm-hmm. and not a metroidvania so i think but the idea of doing another kind of combat exploring it, it, I'm, i now feel tired right, looking yeah. at dead cells i'm like oh no that looks so good damn it dead why does that look so is, good dead cells is something i've played a lot of actually and that's a way twitchier way more like castlevania mm. than metroidvania um, yeah hollow knight uh is the first i'm gonna go ahead and say it's the first souls like game that i've actually respected and enjoyed mm-hmm. i find quite a lot of the souls likes as they are now called they are tribute acts rather than the thing about Hollow Knight is it's very, very much its own game, and you can see the t- the soul's influence, but it's not a kind of lame copy like Lords of the Fallen, which was garbage. Okay, and uh, you know I didn't even know it was French. 
<laughs> even like Salt and Sanctuary, which I think is a really good game, but just the vibe of it was too close to Souls. Salt and Sanctuary did appear from just an outsider or something that just landed at the right time. For there was a hunger for mm. another Souls game, and yeah, it's a very good game. I couldn't personally get into it though because I just wasn't getting a uni. I wasn't getting any. I wasn't getting. I felt like I was playing it, and I felt like I'd rather be playing Dark Souls, you know. Yeah. Whereas Hollow Knight, because it's about weird, lonely bugs. <laughs> and <laughs> getting trapped down a well. Weird lonely bugs down a well right. is essentially what the game is. Um, but it's also got, it's it's still hard and it's got that challenge and it's got the mechanic where if you die, you go back and defeat, your, well, you actually defeat your corpse rather than just collect it, but you go back to where you were and you um, regain all your money. Uh, so it's got a lot of the, it's got a lot of the, uh, the gameplay pillars of a Souls game, but it's got such a unique vibe. Like the well, it's way funny, th- isn't it? How you always have these games that do pioneer a certain system or style and then they end up being for a little while everyone going oh this is a this is like a souls like this is a souls like but they get to a point whereby the dna is just so prolific that it doesn't really matter anymore in the same way like um call of duty modern warfare 4 like had the prestige system of being like you know you'd level up and you'd unlock all this stuff and at that time that was revolutionary but now you wouldn't be like, oh, it's Call of Duty. Yeah, like, exactly. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just it's like, like we were saying last month with the, the MMO mechanics that are now just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't now say it's an MMO-like mm-hmm. or RPG-like mechanic. But I guess the similarities with Hollow Knight is it is, you know, dark and sad. It's and lonely is it's the thing. And the, the key difference between it and Dark Souls in terms of how you feel when you play it is that it's got a heal mechanic. Like you, you can heal yourself if you find a little quiet spot. You can heal yourself, like with Estus. Um, but it's 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 quite forgiving. It's a little yes. And so I'm, I'm not finding I'm dying all the time. And when I go into a new area, I feel trepidation because I don't know what I'm going to see, and I'm excited about what I'm going to find. In the same way that you go into a new area in Souls, but without that kind of side serving of just I'm going to die any second, any second I'm going to die because you're probably not going to die. You might lose a bit mm. of health, and you might have a dodge a, a dicey fight. So there's still got that tension and that really kind of exciting feeling of what's going to happen to me if i go through here but it's not got the oh god damn it start there again are a couple of i did think when i was playing because i must have played it for about 10 hours or so and i think there were definitely a couple of uh things that felt slightly like cheap tricks there were definitely a couple of hard boss fights and then you walk into the next room and there's like a, an enemy that's quite difficult that just one shots you and i'm like oh, oh really yeah but i think oh. that means be if you're if you're low in health or you're not you're not doing too well there's some like there are some dangerous enemies and it's is that because quite, you should have turned back at that point you should yeah, have hit the boss and back. then <laughs> yeah you, probably okay. but i think because it is more relaxed and mm-hmm. doesn't feel as intense like it can lure you into a a sense of security. Oh man, yeah. I, I when I first started playing the game, I was running back all the time to bank my geo and to to rest at a to rest at a bench and to to just save, just running away basically. And then about halfway through the game, I was like, I'm just going to see what happens if I push forward. And yeah, within about half an hour, I was running back to benches again because <laughs> you push forward and you find a boss randomly suddenly in a room, and you're like, oh damn it. I do like that. So I haven't played Hollow Knight at all, and I'm just trying to I'm trying to picture what this is. And I, the the language already, you're running back to a bench to bank your geo. <laughs> that just means nothing to Welcome me. to video. Games. Yes, yes. Uh, I th- the thing that... You have a little sit down on the bench. You have a little sit down yeah. for a rest. Oh, it's okay. really, and oh, right, okay. The benches are... Some of them are strategically... Okay, so so the thing that elevates Hol- Hollow Knight for me is the, the animation and the design of it. It's it's the map and the, the way that it unfurls and curls around on itself and everything connects to everything else is really, really satisfying and beautiful. But it's animation quality art and the, the weird little bugs... Um, it's very, it's very mysterious. The, the lore is one of those things where if you if you want to understand like what's actually going on, you have to dig in and listen. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to. You can just absorb the vibe. The vibe is still like really compelling, even if you don't go and look up all the lore of everything. Um, and the uh, the way that it's designed 
with the rest places, they're like bonfires, you know, mm. benches. They're usually looking out on something. It's kind of oh. in the little corner of the map, and, and sometimes you just sit down and you could just watch for a bit and have a rest. And your little dude sits down and folds his little hands in his lap and just kind of looks tired for a bit. <laughs> That's it is. Yeah. I mean, the art, the art style in it is lovely, and it is a very beautifully made game. I've got to say, like, it's one of these games that kind of frustrates me slightly, purely on the basis that everyone has fallen absolutely in love with it. And I just haven't. Mm. And I like it. It's a good game. I'm not going to deny it, but I, it's one of those games where I wish I was having the same reaction as everyone else because people mm. really seem to be connecting with it in a way, and I can't quite work out why. I think it's the the loneliness of it combined with just it, it's got a very good compelling. There's always one more thing, and every time you get a new every time you get a new ability, uh, there's somewhere in the map where you suddenly recall this thing. You're like, oh, I wonder if I can get past there. And yeah, like, so the, it's very compelling. And this is why it's, it has to be a Switch game for me because I play it in the, you know, minutes <laughs> of time yeah. that I get in between, you know. I think that's it. I've been life. playing it on PC with a controller. If I was sitting down in but, front of a PC, I would never have played it for 30 hours. Like, there's no chance. Yeah. I'm at, like, 80% completed it, which is, you know, it's a an, game. It's an interesting uh, feeling you just described because I think everyone has had it with something. I've been having it with uh, with Star Trek Beyond, like, about... I don't know, three or four months ago. I watched it and it was fine. It was good even. I liked it, but everyone else loved it. And it made me quite frustrated with Star Trek Beyond because I was like, what? What, what, what do you secrets? make me love you? Mean, you? Do you mean Discovery or is there something I don't oh, know? Oh, sorry, about? Discovery. Okay. Uh, yeah, like, not Beyond the movie. another yeah. one? Um, Discovery. And I just never quite uh, just clicked. It. And uh, oh, everyone, everyone Discovery talking has about a, it I mean, is on another level that I am. Disco well, Discovery has a point like about very close to the end where it just has a, a dumb reveal which is so audacious in terms of plot that it, it, it turned me around from being like this is kind of crap but I like it to being like okay I kind of love this but there, it is literally that is one of those things where there is it's like with the things that people say you've got to finish you've got to finish it there yeah. is some stuff later on in that which just had me going I cannot believe they've attempted to plot this audacious <laughs> but I think that the thing I have with Hollow Knight is I think I, I it's funny, it isn't like ripping off Dark Souls and it, it does have its own style and its own feel. But I think that the thing I have with it that finds me unable to really fall in love with it is mechanically it just it just doesn't surprise me at all. There's no there's no like sense of something has been unlocked or something is it's it's very trad and very gentle in that regard so there's nothing I mean, that pops out and makes me go i can't believe i've got this special move this is crazy yeah it's not it's not remixing anything it's no. putting everything yeah it's, it's very very competent and beautiful and it looks so nice it sounds very nice and it's all done very well and for me it's the world building stuff it's yeah it's how everything looks and it's the fact that you can go on a diversion and end up somewhere amazing, somewhere that looks incredible. And you just, you know, you, the, what I love is when you're playing a video game and instead of it just going, you know how when you're, uh, the Far Cry 5 is a good example, you're playing it and it's just washing over you like, oh, okay. And every time there's a bit of story, you're having to talk to someone, you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. What I love about Hollow Knight... I mean, this is quite a unique thing for people who have to play video games for their job, though. Mm. Because I mean, yeah, but, you know, I find a lot of games, though, that the story slash the environment is just kind of wash up. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm here now. And there was what you're doing is what's important. Yeah. You know, what you're doing is more important than what's around you generally. And if you notice what's around... I mean, most people don't even notice what's around them when they're playing a game. Like, that's something designers talk about It's crazy, though, with Far Cry 5, because, like, a thousand people made that exactly. game. Exactly. And, and I, I completely understand what you mean. It should be more sort of breathtaking... And impressive when, yeah, but you just let it wash over you because it, of the the format of the game, perhaps, or because that you've played four, yeah. five Far Cry games and before. I find, then I find it happens with Assassin's Creed too, where I'm I'm literally standing in a recreation of history, <laughs> amazing, and it's incredible. So it's so detailed, everything's so, and and you just it just starts to wash over you. So, and the Hollow Knight never once ever got to the stage where I've stopped paying attention to what's going on. And I love when you're playing a game and you regularly think, what happened here? 
That's, mm. and, and you genuinely think that it's not like a, a character coming up and going what happened here it's a, <laughs> it just occurs to you and I, I also just people don't talk very much in hollow night it's really nice to just occasionally you find a character and you're like oh my god speak to me talk to me i'm that's so lonely interesting. maybe that's where my disconnect with it is then because i enjoy the environments and i enjoy them in a, a sense of art but with a lot of locations i can't really envision them being places where um, things happened where things you. happened or things existed. I just see them yeah. as being like architecture. Oh, when you get further out to the kind of reaches of the, like the, the, the first, I think it gets better as you go on. It's one of those games that, because I thought, okay, this is fun. I don't quite get why everyone loves it so much, but this is fun until I found my first place in the game, which was um, the Fog Canyon. It was the first place I've, you've not played it. I'm just looking at you with recognition in my eyes. Right. You've got to, <laughs> come, on, come on, man, can the Fog Canyon. The, the Fog Canyon. We all remember the, first... the first way we felt when we walked into the Fog Cavern. <laughs> it's just what so foggy. Here? It's just so foggy. How can there be this much fog in one place? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it was the first place I'd been to that wasn't obviously connected to, it didn't feel like I was supposed to be there. You know, I got there and I was like, oh shit, where am I? Oh, I don't have a map. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time and there was weird shit in there. There's all sorts of places I couldn't get to and it's full of horrible jellyfish and it, I just, it was the first place where I felt oh, like I was yeah, somewhere. I I, there, yeah. It was somewhere I felt like I shouldn't be, and that made me feel excited. And as you go on, you know, the, it, it's got that Dark Souls model of you just go down, 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 yeah. down to the depths of the yeah. earth, and it gets more and more like, why am I? Don't want to be here. And the sound is like, there's this horrible, there's this horrible place called Deep Nest where just all the enemies are spiders or dead things, and it's 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 it's, it's the sound design. You just walk into a room and you hear this kind of coming from the corner and you're I like I don't, as well wanna, if, I don't think I want to go in here I don't think this is a game I played with headphones and I think it may be a thing that I had to turn my headphones off it's too much it's yeah, too intense interesting. but I'm very sensitive I find I'm very sensitive to sound in general like I'm, I'm, I can't handle fireworks for instance or bonfire night because there's too many loud sudden noises and I can't stand it and I find with games I, um, I've had to play with headphones more often recently because yeah. other people are in my house and I have to turn the volume right down because otherwise it's too intense oh, right. it's too much I have this really that. nice fancy PlayStation headset that I barely use because it's too much. You know, if you've got, especially if it's a if it's a, um, a game with guns in, and there's all these yeah. guns going off like everywhere in all of your peripheral hearing. I found a game that really, really exploded into life with proper 5.1 headphones was um, Bloodborne. Oh, the man. audio mix in that game is actually incredible. I've just started playing that actually. Well, it's it's a bizarre thing in the fact that I I initially we just played it with through the speakers and it, mm -hmm. you know it's like you know it's got great music it's got great sound it's very gruesome but as soon as you wear headphones, there's so much stuff really low in the mix that you just won't hear through right. TV speakers or even good speakers. Um, and uh, especially when you're walking through the towns, you get these tiny whispers in the houses and it's just really really low level stuff that is just the audio mix in that game is absolutely phenomenal. I'm only starting to appreciate, like really appreciate sound quite recently because my partner is an audiophile, vinyl collector type, mm -hmm. and he is playing. So you can get now 5.1 Blu-ray, extremely high fidelity mixes of stuff that you can only play if you have very expensive equipment, basically. Yeah. And I'm sitting there listening to Station to Station, which is one of my favorite Bowie albums, and hearing stuff I've never heard in it. Mm -hmm. He's got a great 5.1 mix of Sgt. Pepper's Beatles album as well that... You know, I, you're just listening to it, and suddenly I'm like, I, now I understand why it is that people spend all this ridiculous. <laughs> that my amount partner of money. has one thousand vinyl records. Yes, it's the more than one thousand, <laughs> a bunch. But like, he also, you know, he's 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 in his mid forties. Like, mm -hmm. he, you can't afford when you're when you're in your twenties, in your early twenties especially, you're listening to music and games, everything you have, you're listening to through your TV speakers yeah. or yeah. like your laptop speakers, and you, you know, if you're time, exactly, yeah. if you're lucky, yeah. you have nice-ish mm. earbuds, and only when. I mean, it is, it's a real gate. It's a real money gate. You know, audio is one of those things that it really matters how much money you spend. When, when you get up above a certain point, you know, playing God of War, 
in our home cinema setup was just extraordinary. It was so good. It had to be yeah. quite quiet because it was yeah. intense, but it was so good. Again, I played amazing. that actually with, with five point headphones and, and things like the, the world serpent, talk, serpent talking was oh. just absolutely insane. Like the audio mix on that. But the thing is about audio, which is really interesting is obviously there is this like high ceiling and it's a thing of like, you know, if you really want to get some good stuff, you've got to spend some cash. And also most people, you don't really know until you've tried it how much of a difference it's going to make. So mm. why would you buy a really good headphones or really good speakers when you could buy a really good TV? Yeah, and also it, you ju- a lot of the time you just can't afford it. You and know? Also, the brutal thing is a lot of the time it's not designed for that. Yeah, things aren't mixed for it. Like the most, game, mu- most modern music isn't mixed for it. Not even Because games. nobody's listening mm. to it. Yeah, games or, or videos or whatever. Like, like Bad Company 2. Uh, actually it was the original Battlefield Bad Company was the first game I played where I was like oh my gosh like the audio mix on that with decent headphones was just incredible but then most games are designed for and mixed for TV you know and also I mean most games now you can switch that but it's the difficulty is 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 it worth it to make a really really good 5.1 mix in the same way a difficulty I have with making videos and it kind of Mm -hmm. it doesn't really bother me anymore I just sort of begrudgingly accept it but I spend a lot of time making the videos I do look really nice in like, you know, high definition and making them. You are well nerdy about that. I shit. am well nerdy. And I make it so the after effects I do, like, it's like, you know, you can watch it in 1080 and you can watch it on a big TV and you can freeze the frame at any point. And you know what? Every frame of it is going to stand up. There's not going to be any janky bits. There's not going to be bits where you go, oh, actually, he's cut corners there. And I do the same thing with the audio. And I'm not an audio expert and I'm still trying to improve on that all the time. But I'd make the audio mix really nice. So if you're watching my videos on really nice headphones or really nice sound systems, they'll sound good. But I'm also aware that 90% of people watch YouTube videos on their phone. Yeah, I've got... Maybe not even without headphones. I've had to get into the habit of, because I edit with with decent headphones, I've had to get into the habit of at the end of that process, Mm -hmm. like taking them out, putting something in that's not decent. And just, or like through my uh, monitor speakers or whatever, and just make sure like, what does that actually sound like for a lot of the people that sometimes it sounds this. worse yeah. like to a point where you need to go back and change it mm-hmm. yeah or like things that you put lower in the mix just aren't, aren't there you like you barely yep. recognize them yeah you, i always yeah you can see why this is a challenge for game developers as well because if you make you know you can't afford to make a 4k enabled extraordinary 5.1 7.1 surround sound game unless you're literally sony's first party yeah. studio mm-hmm. because one to ten percent Mm-hmm. of your audience is going to play it that way yeah it's kind of making like i've never been a pc person and the main reason for this is that i can't be arsed with with fiddling a really good reason not to do it yes <laughs> honestly it's the main I reason think, why i think it's the top reason for most people i just as we would say and in Scotland, i applaud it i just can't be fashed it's, yes it's, yep. it's, it's no. too it's too much and uh you know the, seeing my pc gamer friends or my audiophile partner just fiddle it's fun for him. He sits there for a day and fiddles with all the settings on his new app. This is what people don't want to I get admit. it. I get it. The fiddle is the fun. <laughs> like It's I've supposed built, to be like this. I've built gaming PCs many times. It's really satisfying. Yeah. And then I load up something like The Witcher 3 and go, wow. And then think, do I actually want to sit and play it? Not now, no. Honestly, I'm, glad it, I'm glad I could. I, like now that I've now that I've tweaked everything just right. The process right. of building the machine is, is half the I must, fun. I must have seen the first level of Crisis about 35 times right. when I was going out with somebody who was like like building PCs but the actual playing of the video games that were but that was what it was available for, for yeah. them it wasn't for playing yeah, yeah. <laughs> I reckon like only about 10% of the people who have bought that game have seen like past halfway through the game god I played it I re- I, I'm trying to desperately remember the plot of Crisis I well, found in a robot suit having yeah. a good time with guns isn't yeah. it I found out that that ex-boyfriend who did all the PC fiddling um is now a semi-famous YouTuber. Wow. I found this out because one of their videos popped up on my YouTube feed the other day. 
And I was like, I recognize that voice. Where do I recognize? What? <laughs> and it's it's one of those things where I thought this must have been what it's been like, because he's very into games. I thought this mm. must have been what it's been like for him for years. Like he must have been looking at the games media and seeing <laughs> seeing my stupid name or face. <laughs> well everyone's the famous YouTuber these days, aren't they? <laughs> everybody. It's just it's just all the rage. It's like avocados at dinner parties. It's just everybody's doing it. Um, but yeah, no, it's, this stuff is really interesting. And I think actually it's, it's quite telling that like in some regards, game studios are on this and I don't begrudge game studios not investing super heavily in audio design because lots of people are not going to experience it. Mm. But by the same merit, it's amazing how many games are being released that have the tiniest text in the world because all the game devs are sitting right next to monitors yes. and they don't appreciate that but like, people but, are going to be four feet away from it. Bearing in mind as well, I've been playing Hollow Knight mostly through my Switch speakers, but also through a cheapish pair of headphones. Like the audio sounds so good on it. I'm sure they've not... You know, I'm sure it's maybe it is mixed for a really high end mm-hmm. PC, but you know the, the way that it works and the, the animation and the, and the sound are, are really well designed. But they're not they're not gated off from people by the by the the standard of their equipment. I think that's I mean, what, mobile gaming I think has done this as well. Yeah, where it's encouraged an approach to game design that isn't just how can I make this the best it can be for the people with the best stuff out there, but how do I make this extraordinary for everyone yeah i think that there's something really important to think about for that's what's most important now it's not how how many graphics you have exactly it's how well does what you're making work on everything that people are playing it Mm -hmm. on and it's like a completely different challenge from what everyone was going for in the 90s and early 2000s it's like what can we get out of the technology you know you're right and it's going to be a huge shift change now because of the switch the switch is a huge player and it means you're going to be having modern games being designed as in hey what's this going to look like for the person who has the 4k ultra massive tv that takes up half of their house (laughs) and also will that also look good on a switch right next to that like on a tiny screen like and ui stuff that's a really big and interesting consideration i was sitting there on my couch for most of the most of a year in 2017 playing Zelda. I'm still playing it. Yeah. It's still so good. It's ridiculous. But, you know, I was sitting there on my couch in front of the 55-inch television in my living room, just sitting playing it on the couch on, in handheld mode. My partner would be like, why don't you just dock yeah. it? Just dock it and play it on the huge television I spent all this money on. I'm like, nah, <laughs> I'm good. It's really <laughs> it's nice. It's quite nice like this. It's, it feels intimate, yeah. you know? And I also have, I have a real... Ever since I, I I basically fetishized the Game Boy as a child because mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed one. So I was so obsessed with it. And when I finally, finally got one when I was 11... I played it all the time, everywhere. I played it at the bath. I still do that with handheld consoles. Yeah. I just there's something about them. I just find so it's like having a book. You know, I just find them so comforting. The novelty yeah. of having of playing games of that quality on something that is that portable is just not worn off at all yet. No, I mean, I still I still just load up Zelda sometimes and have a walk around when I'm on the bus. I'm like, I'm yeah. on the bus. <laughs> I should be able to do this. Look at this. this is ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I, I save it for like journeys now, like train journeys or plane journeys, and I'll load it up and I'll be like, where am I? What am I doing? I don't know. And then I'll just wander somewhere new. And I've almost uncovered most of the map now. I, I'm actually, you know, I'm getting towards the point where it's like, yeah, you know, you're maybe almost done with this. Mm. But I still can't get over the like the difference in texture between not just the areas but in terms of like the density of it the fact that you have some areas where it's like oh there's three or four shrines here there's lots of stuff going on there's a little town and then discovering parts of the map where it's just like yeah this is just a big empty beach and in most games like that would be seen as a failure like if you played like a bethesda game Mm -hmm. it would be unthinkable because those um have such a smooth texture throughout it's like it's like porridge for your for your brain and hands i was gonna say ice cream ice cream i mean I'm less fond of them, so we <laughs> meet in the middle somewhere. Uh, ice cream with bits in? Ice cream with bits in, yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. Um, but yeah, it's this this thing of having like a massive beach where there's not really anything there. And in most games, you'd be like, this is unfinished. But in Zelda, it just, it's weird. Like you're walking around and it just, it hammers home how desolate and empty and 
alone this place and it reminds you you're in an abandoned world sometimes there's just that one thing in an area yeah isn't there there's like like there's, there's there is a beach i'm thinking of that's a big spiral yeah i think that might be it yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. there's nothing there except for like right at the center of that spiral and what's so great about the zelda map is that you look at the the map screen and you see shapes beautiful shapes and you're mm-hmm. like and it just guides your eye towards i bet there's something there yeah or there and you just oh i'm I, that game can we just talk about zelda for the next three years i mean because honestly yeah. the way they the way the that game was designed uh when when uh like early on when they had the the base level of the map and they were just walking around the world to try and think about where important things needed to be have you heard this thing about the triangles they used mm. and basically they would it's called a triforce Chris. <laughs> they've been using the triangles in zelda games for a very long time <laughs> I, be- I believe they would basically put uh triangles um onto the the dev version where important things were and the or where important things should be and the idea being from very much wherever you're standing in the game, you should be able to like scan the horizon and at least see like the tip of one of these triangles or see something that it allows you to just explore like that. So when you're on like a bus journey and you just want to have a wander around, you can just quickly scan and see something that just looks a bit weird over there that you might want to go and check out. Yeah. And that that was from the very start of development. They they thought about the the not just the map as in like looking down at a 2D plane, but like as a character in that world, if you if you just look across the game, like seeing interesting things to just wander towards. And I think you can totally, every time people talk about that game, uh, they're amazed by how much stuff there is you can just bump into without really meaning to, but it's so orchestrated. Yeah, it's it's genuinely a masterwork and it's a great shame that it was a launch title for Twitch that everyone chewed through to have a, have a mm. take on immediately. Yeah. It's one of those games that I wish was coming out on Twitch, yeah. on Twitch so we could have a, another whole wave of conversations about it. <laughs> As we In were, the same way that, like, you know, Hollow Knight, you were like, oh, you know, it's suddenly a game that now is more relevant to talk about than it was when it came out, which the, is bizarre. The other wonderful thing about Switch ports is that by the time they get to the Switch, A, it's like, this used to be the PlayStation 4, but A, it's like the best of Steam. But yeah. The best of Steam mm-hmm. makes it onto console. I'm now at the stage where I don't have the time to find out for myself what the best of Steam is. And when it comes to console, I'm like, good, that's probably that's probably a safe bet. And then the other thing is, by the time it comes to console, they've fixed a bunch of shit and given you some extra stuff for free. So yeah. Hollow Knight <laughs> has both of its like content packs mm-hmm. and it's got... You know, I was looking through, just because... Uh, <laughs> I'm so obsessed with this game. I was looking through the credits and like all the options screens and stuff. And it had a little bit where it's like, here's oh, here's the content packs. It was obviously just cobbled together like from the patch notes. And... I was just having a little read through it. When it launched, it didn't have map markers. I'm like, right. I would be so irritated if I didn't have map markers for this Metroidvania game where I need to mark stuff <laughs> that I need to come back to later. And all these little tiny little things that would have annoyed me when I was playing it if I'd played it on a PC a year and a half ago or a year ago. I think a really it's good example of that is um, Hyperlight Drifter, which was a game that yeah. had a huge hype. Everyone played it at launch. And at launch, I get the impression, it was a bit shambolic in many regards. It was too hard. Um, and the lack of like, it is one of those games where the lack of 60 frames per second very much was like holding it back because it was so fast and so twitchy. And mm-hmm. I'm not usually the sort of person to ever be like, this game has to have because I believe the opposite most of the time. However, in this case, sure, they made the dodging easier. They made it smoother. They made it sharper. They had all sorts of fixes. And when I got to playing it, it was just straight out of the box. One of the best games I've ever played. If I could talk about one game that I've played in the last three or four years that has just stuck with me and I really think is an actual modern classic that people don't really understand that it's a modern classic enough and talk about it in that, it's Hyperlight Drifter. I think it's out on Switch. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least coming. I think it's coming, but I recommend it so highly. I think about it all the time. And aesthetically, it's just a masterpiece Like in terms of atmosphere and aesthetics. it's, It's so evocative, it makes my skin tingle. So what is it about Dead Cells that's 
snatched you up where Warhol failed to. I think I wanted something because there's the, I like two sides of Dark Souls style things. I like the I like the atmosphere and I like the sense of sadness and place and story. But I think at that point I was kind of up something a little bit more twitchy. And Dead Cells <laughs> is very much that. It's very much like you go through and the first few hours you play it, you're going to have 15 minute runs and you're going to get killed because you'll need to understand there aren't many enemy types, but you need to understand their patterns, how they move and you need to know when to dodge roll and all this stuff yep. kind of becomes second nature, but it's much faster than something like Dark Souls. It's not slow and deliberate and careful. It's much more like Castlevania and it's incredibly well animated in a different way. They've used 3d models and it has so much life and humor. It's very funny. Um, but it's very funny, it's very slick, it has great music, it has a great sense of pace, and it has that kind of one more try feel of this time you go, oh my gosh, this combination of items is incredible, I'm going to get through. However, I've got to say it does kind of sag as it goes on. Like it's, it's most exciting for the first few hours you play it. And when you get to the point where you can reliably beat the first boss, you then have this middle zone of the game where it takes about another 25 minutes to get through to the next big challenge at which point usually if you've beaten the boss quite easily that next 25 minutes is has some really cool areas and some really cool enemies but it's a little bit more autopilot right. and it's not mm. as difficult um and i think it's one of those things whereby when you have something a little more crafted and a little more technical and twitchy having that crafted gameplay like a castlevania game actually benefits more than having something a bit more procedural it's still very good. Why, why does it drop in cool. the middle? Is it because you've acquired... So I know like gear is a big part of that game. Is it because you have sort of have a, an equipment set that you you know how to use at that stage? Or the um, enemies are, are less unpredictable? Or I mean... There's some, there's some like uh, acid pits and stuff, aren't there? Like some quite boring platformy fallbacks, I've heard. Uh, yeah. Like in the early bits, you have like, you know, the first level's fairly easy. Mm -hmm. And then when you get into the second level, you have like, you know, spinning balls and... and spike pits and uh and some but some bits that just have like you know bottomless pits that will lose you a chunk of your health right and yeah until you've really nailed the platforming you are going to be losing health to those in a way you just aren't later on okay also in the early bits you haven't got much health upgrades and the more upgrades you get the more resilient you become but also you tend to get a combination of a sword that does loads of damage and then it causes bleeding and then this causes twice as much damage when you hit with bleeding and basically you kind of end up in a situation where A, you can take like five or six hits quite easily mm -hmm. and B, you can just generally from afar like just make things explode in a way that doesn't really require you to fight things face to face because okay. you just go boom, boom, boom and then things just explode. Um, so yeah, you just have a patch in the middle where the most exciting part of, the, of that game is basically when you're like level two or level three and not that experience mm -hmm. where you've got a sliver of health and you're really like, you know, heart in your chest trying yep. to just get through the end of the level to get more healing potions. But then there is a middle part where when you get a hang of it, you're just like, it's fun, but you're not really in any fear. And then it's one of those games where the difficulty spikes, as was true in all these classic games, the difficulty spikes are the bosses and they're kind of annoying because it's suddenly like, oh, here's an enemy that like you really have to learn its patterns and it has loads of health. And it's still really good. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie, but it's just it's not as good as I thought it was for the first three or four hours of playing it. Okay. It's not a modern classic yet, but they've been iterating on it so much and tightening it that it yeah. may become one. I just don't think it's quite there. I've been saying this for years, but playing games when they first come out makes me feel like a bloody idiot these days. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just fair. wait six months to a year, 
and you get a much better version of it for less money. I'm not doing it. it can play ancient stuff now. It's great. It, it can be interesting. It depends what what kind of relationship you want with that game. I'm playing something that's sort of similar to what you described. It's a, a roguelike, but a card game as well. Have you heard of Slay the Spire? Oh yes. yes. Yeah. I think you like knowing your your game taste in particular. Matt, you would you'd really like it. So I, I think know. I've been avoiding it because I hate the art style. Yeah. The, so the aesthetics are that awful. is absolutely fair. Um, however, so like, why are they like they? Like, yeah, a, like, bit, a bit MS Paint, if I'm being brutal. I think, yeah, I, th- that is the the weakest point of the game. But that I I think, given the success of the, I know I've heard mechanically, it. it's really yeah. really good. So the thing, the thing that I hire an artist, sorry, I'm in sure six they will. To a year, I'll come I, out and switch it up. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> but it's it's quite nice to see the progression of the game at the moment. I'm I'm just interested by the decisions they're making. But the um, the j- just for people that don't know the game, the the beauty of it is I've I've struggled to play card games casually before. So things like. Hearthstone or Magic, like, I feel like so much of that game is won or lost in the deck building. So before you even sit down for the card game, you need to invest so much time into knowing what the current like meta is. This is. What's no- oh, is this what's known as the meta? Chris? There we go. Yes, we yes, go. the meta. Yeah. Um, and the thing that uh, Slay the Spire does is it's a card game in the fact that your character is basically defined by the deck you have. But you just start with a standard deck at the start of your run and you your objective is to keep going through rooms to get to the top of the spider and, and and defeat the final boss. And every room you go through, every enemy you defeat, at the end of it, you're presented three different cards to pick from. And these, basically, your your character levels up and progresses like they would in a normal dungeon crawler. Uh, and it's like an RPG in that sense, but your character has no stats, really. They're all, it's all things that are being added to your deck. And that so that sounds, that sounds basic. So you're thinking maybe like, sure, they get a... Rather than having like a, a standard attack, they have like a heavy attack or, or something like that. It's much, much more creative. And also one one of the things I love about the the idea of this this deck that you end up using in every single fight is that even your character's negative traits that you pick up. So if you um if you get if you do something stupid and get an injury because you you did something daft in one of the choose your own adventure bits, um, that injury is a card that goes into your deck that you might then just draw later on and uh, it will it will get in the way of of what you need to do. It might be something like, if this is if this card is left in your hand at the end of the turn, you're going to take extra damage. Sure. And it's like a legacy item, almost a card that you've picked up early in the dungeon, which you'd forgotten about. Right. And it comes back to haunt you. Is there a slight darkest dungeon vibe to that? Yeah, a like kind bit. of hangovers from your previous. Yeah, I think so. It's not it's not quite as um like darkest dungeon is really like uh you, you the. You, you basically use up characters in that game. It feels like you, you they're going to break eventually and then you get rid of them and replace them with someone else. This this uh, uh, is a single character that is getting stronger, but you little see, curses and injuries you might pick up get slotted in there. I find this stuff really interesting because uh, obviously sitting at the, the crossroads between video games and board games mm-hmm. and card games, like being now less a video games person and more a kind of in that zone, we shut up and sit down. It's like all of this stuff is just like, yeah, like it's yeah. really interesting because these are all mechanics which have been in, in card games for like three or four years. That's good mechanics, mm-hmm. but it's just amazing how often you have people going nuts for stuff when you're like, this is all right. But yeah. like, this is like, I mean, like the Arkham, if you're interested in, in card games and uh, this sort of thing, like Ar- the Arkham Horror living card game is mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic and it works brilliantly with two players you can check out our shut and sit down review of that it's a particularly good review it has silly hats etc <laughs> but um 
Yeah, that's a wonderful thing where you, yeah, you play through these mini adventures that are all like narrative based mm-hmm. and you're going through this adventure and you're trying to do this. Your deck is your character. Yeah, I, I'd never seen that in a video game. I'm yeah, sure yeah. obviously they've drawn it from from there. But it's interesting how it's like you, you tend to get these reverberations of things popping up about a year later and people going, <laughs> it's so new and exciting. And it's like, you know, that has a thing where like the idea in that is it's kind of Lovecraftian. So you have cards that get put into your deck, which are weaknesses. And it's this idea that your character is a deck of things like their abilities to search libraries mm. or fight or investigate people and then every now and then they just lose their shit and they're just like suddenly they become really paranoid and it's like discard your hand and you go oh my gosh because your yeah. character's just losing it that's yeah well, that that sounds like a, a very clear inspiration i yeah i, I it is interesting actually I, for me that feels like such a fresh yeah. unusual thing i'll tell you what's fresh right now for anyone interested <laughs> in the board games yeah like okay. what's the sort of thing now <laughs> you'll which see is, fresh you'll hey see kids. this in a year <laughs> hello fellow killer kids I, i'm gonna tell you what's fresh the squid sisters are here to tell you what's, <laughs> what's fresh <laughs> what's fresh don't get cooked stay <laughs> off the hook yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh dear um so what's fresh right now in board games this is this is fresh out of gen con which is the premier massive board game industry (laughs) event i don't really like but hey it's massive and it's fresh is something from fantasy flight games called keyforge now i don't even know how much i like this i think it's quite fun it's pretty silly it's very swingy but it's an insane idea and it's the sort of thing in video games would not be an insane idea and they could copy this and people would be like whatever but Mm. in physical it's mad as beans (laughs) you've got the system whereby it's not a deck builder but it's a deck game where you buy a deck in a in a packet and it's a a slightly randomized deck which has a card back with a name and art which is unique and you are not allowed to change that deck the whole game is not it's not a deck builder it's not where you modify a deck you buy a deck that is a unique deck and then you play with that deck and it might be a good one or it might not be but there's nothing you can do to make it better or worse that seems like it would be fun once. Well, this but, is the, where, where is the meta? How does the game evolve? Well, this is this is the point, and this is kind of why I love it because it's something where people who talk about these sorts of games are absolutely bewildered by it. Because the big question <laughs> is, where's the meta? How does this work? Yeah. And people are losing their minds, and that's the main reason I love it. It's because it's pure chaos. Is, this, is it kind of like having just a really shit car, but you love it anyway? Maybe you know yeah. you got a car that breaks down all the time. It's rubbish. You know, you're always having to take it to the mechanic, but you still manage to get place with it. You got this deck, it's bullshit, it has two really key, but it's your deck. Yeah, I guess damn it. And you, if you win with well, it, you feel special. Idea. That feeling would come with it, right? Like that it's yeah, it's it's just yours. It's it's you and you you know, there's nothing stopping you from buying more than one of them and buying them until you find one that you think is good. But what's also interesting about it is the way the meta works with this is they have a system whereby in tournament play if you win a certain number of games in a row with it, then it has a mechanic within the game that basically then means that you you start getting a handicap playing with it. What happens? Can you? Wow. And if you keep winning despite the handicaps, then they have a system where the idea is these decks will ascend. So it might be a thing of if you have a deck that is just decks, really good and you play your with decks it really well, with God now. then it's like the highest, rather than being like in most metas for card games where, and this is the problem you talked about with Hearthstone, yeah. where you have a being like everyone ends up playing with the same decks. Mm-hmm. That's the that's same in Im- Pokemon, actually. Yeah, that's it's impossible. the only card game I pay attention yeah, to. It is the you can't do that. You can't copy game. someone else's, like somebody could win a tournament with a deck you can't go out there and use that deck. And even they, know, they can't keep using the same No, because either. if a deck that's is too good, wonderful. then it's like the highest thing you can get in this is having a deck that is so good that you become immortalized as being like, hey, congratulations, you are one of the best players in the world. You've won with this deck this time. Now this deck can never, because they're uniquely named I've, and uniquely QR coded, you can never play with that deck again. I've no idea no how to form an opinion on that. You I can't even like, sell the deck <laughs> because it's not worth anything because you can't play with I it. I think that might be genius. I think it, it might it be also, well. it also frees you of spending 
loads and loads of money trying to get the exact cards that you need for your I mean, I don't know. Which, will hang on, though, that's a bad business decision, though, because it means that people won't be spending a bunch of money I, on I don't know. I, like, trading I, cards. I think you could totally get sucked into like, oh, but like, what if the next deck I buy is just... It's like when you you um, you um play a, a roguelike again, you're like, well, what if this item drops this time? Like, I'll, just yeah. another run would be great. Like, oh, I can do it next time. I, I could totally see that. It's decision. so, so weird yep. and uh, so left field. And again, I think it's wonderful just because it's so out there that people don't have a clue how to react to it in yep. a way which I think is wonderful. But it's designed by Richard Garfield, who's the guy who designed oh. Magic the Gathering. And it's currently designing Artifact. Uh, the yeah, Dota honestly, I think that Garfield is going through a bit of a renaissance at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, there's a bunch of things we we played recently, most of them family games. There's a family game called Bunny Kingdom, which was not quite right for us and our audience, but was really delightful cool. and pretty great. I think he's doing I, good I stuff. I met him recently. He's, he's yeah, a very humble, nice man, which I, I really always like to see in, yeah. a, in a like a cool designer. But yeah, that's that's the kind of thing at the moment. So I find it... It's not that I want to be like, oh, people don't know what they're talking about. But I find it quite cute when like video games people are like mm-hmm. just getting into digital card games yeah. and they're going, this is crazy. And it's like, you want to know crazy? Yeah, you don't know. Look, look behind this curtain. This is crazy. This is craziness. That, is, that doesn't exist. That is 100% me because I can't, I just never have been able to get into board or card gaming apart from the Pokemon trading card game, which I played when I was a kid mm-hmm. competitively. I just, I've just never been, when I am, um, Partly because I don't get that much time to see my friends. My friends live over the world. Yeah. When I'm sitting down with my friends, if there's a board game on the table, I'm just like, this is getting in the way of talking to you. Yeah. And I feel like when I have people around, you know, at university it would have worked because you have a consistent group of people that you hang out with, you know, once or twice a week, every week. And I feel like as just I, the board game renaissance came at completely the wrong time in my life. Mm-hmm. It came right when I was moving in with my partner and therefore didn't have like housemates to play with. Right when I moved to the other end of the country, didn't have my kind of group of people that would have been interested to play with. I've been down to play, because I'm very interested in D&D and, and uh, live action. I did a lot of acting when I was um, in uni. So I'm very interested in D&D and other kind of live action role-playing tabletop stuff because that allows you a bit of improvisation. Board games, every single time I've tried, you know, with my friend, because obviously you're a friend of mine, you, you're into board games. I've got mm-hmm. several of the friends who are really into it, but pretty much every time we've been around to play board games, I've had a nice time, but I've also been like, we see you twice a year. Yeah, no, And we've just not- spent two hours playing this board game instead of talking about our lives. And so it's really hard to, you know, and, and I really it's not enjoy for that. No, yeah. no. No. And I really enjoy when, uh, when I go to GDC and you have your shut up and sit down area, mm-hmm. because then it's a bunch of people I don't know. And I come down and I say, I play a cool game with people that I've never met. And also, it seems to be a good way for shy people to socialize, basically. You know, there's a lot of, you know, nice, nerdy game developers. For me, it's, a, it's kind of what I do. And it's like, a good way to get to know each other. For me, I kind of use them in the way I used to play video games a lot. And I just find they're like healthier for me because I, I find that I still do sometimes when I'm feeling like really kind of knackered and burnt out and low, I play video games. But I sometimes find that leads to less healthy patterns and relationships, especially if the games are addictive and they're the ones I like the mm. most. Do you, do you not find that? with board games there's a lot of like social energy you have to expend no no really because that's the thing especially with some there are like if you've got like a game about bluffing or lying or whatever but actually like euro games for example which are games where you just move cubes around and get points and maybe don't even interact with each other that much you just make a nice little farm with sheep and go i just made 18 Mm -hmm. carrots and then you get points for that and you win or you don't that's kind of what i like having friends over and basically just sort of sitting quietly occasionally chatting 
but it's mainly kind of a gentle way of playing a game, but with people there. What, what yeah. was the the name of the railroad game we played yesterday? Um, the oh railroad drink. ink ink uh, that was yeah. it yeah um, yeah so that's very much a case of like you don't really talk but yeah it's a nice that, gentle that thing. was really nice because it was the end of a day of quite heavy socializing yeah. and we did the nightmare live thing and and like. It was. It'd been quite an intense day, and then it was nice to be in other people's company. Exactly for half an hour, and not really like talk too much, but feel like as part of a group and just tinkering around. And that's what they serve for me now. It's a really nice thing to do when you want to be around people, but you don't have the energy. And I find I'm like that a lot these days. I'm like, I'm just wiped out, and I feel a bit crap, and I don't have any energy. But I don't want to be on my own. But I also, Mm -hmm. because I'm somebody who socially wants to give everyone everything I've got. I know that I can't like go to the pub or something because I'm like, I'll just burn myself out more. That makes a lot of sense. But being like, hey, mm. come around my house and we'll sit and we'll quietly look at cards and maybe every <laughs> half an hour we'll have a chat and a laugh about something but then get back to our cards. It's, <laughs> like, it's actually a really nice thing that feels quite wholesome and in a way which just is never addictive. I don't think I've ever played a board game which is addictive. Yeah. Uh, whereas video games these days, it's. Uh, I think that's again another reason why I've been enjoying playing games from... Uh, you know, maybe five, six, up to ten years ago. Uh, before the compulsion loops became yeah, thing. before yes. they became like really established. And it's mm-hmm. interesting as well that things that would have annoyed me at the time, I now accept as being quirks of the era. Like, yeah, you were talking about Darksiders last time and finding the <laughs> the interesting weirdnesses. Mm-hmm. I've been playing, um, and I'll come back to this in another podcast, I think, because I'm intending to play the the game that follows it in the series, which everyone says is the best one. But I've been playing some of the nonary games on the 3DS, and I'm playing Virtue's Last Reward. Because yes. I suddenly found myself being like, you know what, actually, despite the fact that they're problematic and occasionally creepy, I really like Japanese visual novels with puzzles in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went back to that and I'm having a lot of fun with it, even though it's like, it's kind of annoying mechanically and very much like a kind of game of its era. Like there's no option to speed up the text. You just can't do it. Oh, that's what stopped <laughs> me playing it in the end. Well, that's fair. Like it's it incredibly me annoying, nuts. but <laughs> I don't get annoyed about it because I just accept that it's like a game from a different era. And I'm like, okay, fine. But yeah, like... I had a really weird moment, and I know you feel quite differently about this because I've heard you talk about this game before, but I've been playing a little bit of Final Fantasy XII, the Zodiac Age. Um, I like it. Which I, I find it... I just, I'm just i fascinated by the fact that it's it's an older game that's been redone for a modern audience, and, and what that has meant is that they allow you to fast-forward the game, yep. which is just mind-blowing as, like a, as a decision to make. Like say, saying to your audience, like... We know that this is, gets a bit monotonous, and you just want to do a bunch of it, but do it really quickly. And I, I, I still, I, I'm trying to figure out whether or not I like it at the moment. And I, <laughs> this is it. I loved it. Yeah. Has my whole life been a lie? <laughs> yeah, and this, a waste of time. It makes, yeah. it makes me feel weird about having played Final Fantasy XII the first time around without that. Now, because I'm like, if the designers re- recognize that, like in the future, people won't want to play it like that <laughs> again. Was, playing was games when they come smirk? out for suckers. Yeah, yeah. It turns out, just wait. <laughs> 10 years oh, 10, 10 this, this is becoming the the like the theme of this podcast isn't it it's just like <laughs> don't play the new games just play them later it'll like be fine games because most yeah. of the time they've been given all the love that they deserve <laughs> and then left to be relics yeah. and you pick them up and go god this is nice yeah. yeah no i mean actually that was something we covered in um episode two of cool ghosts mm-hmm. which is our if you don't know is our kind of rebooted mad tv show which takes me absolutely months to make and i'm I'm doing some reshoots for now for the third episode. It is coming along, but gosh, it's just... It's the, the you're you're looking out, out of the window at the rain at the moment as you said that. <laughs> it's the pains of being a bit of a perfectionist about it, really. Observing Matt doing that, I've just noticed that you have a telescope pointed directly at the windows opposite your flat. He's a creep. <laughs> okay, right. What is that about? That's been moved from the other window because we can open that window and it was sunny. 
I promise. Yeah, I only use it to spy on the i360 over there. We don't even look at the stars. You just spy on the tourists on the beach. Not Everyone like I know. Like the people directly opposite so, you. And that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the i360, if people don't know, is a circular viewing um, disc which goes up on a big pole and lets people look out around Brighton. It's a, it's a pole and dancing it, UFO. And anyone who goes up in a greenhouse hundreds of feet in the air because they want to look at everyone else, they are fair game, yeah, I think. They think they're looking out at Brighton, but we're looking back, Kesa. We're looking back. Yes. It's a small act of resistance. <laughs> I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think it's absolutely fine. They're asking for it. I get so many, like, this is the backdrop we use with uh, the People Make Games episodes at the moment. And that is the most consistent question we get about the show is, what? Who are you spying on? Is it, you're not weird, are you? <laughs> you could be doing some really long tail journalism. That's your your I- video in two years is going to be like, I've been watching this developer for three years. In his house. Oh my God. Going to the shop. <laughs> he says he's been working hard on this game. He that is hasn't one of, been. <laughs> that is one of those details that makes you change how you think about a person. Yeah. You just find out, oh yeah, they just spy on their neighbours. Mm. There was a, there's a guy at my uh, my office that I go to a big co-working office with a bunch of different people who do different things in it. And so, there's a guy... So, so you can't specify who it is there? No. Right, okay. There's a guy I, I work with there who's, you know, super cool guy. I like him a lot. And he said the other day, he uh, we were talking about productivity stuff. Mm-hmm. And he has this website... I can't remember the, t- I think it's called, I can't remember, the t- it's a pun on stuff, I think, but he has every single one of his possessions Wow. documented on this website. He's like, yeah, it's great. I've got everything I own. I know exactly how much I'm worth at any minute. If I ever want to eBay anything, it's just a button to click away. I'm like, you have photographed, documented and valued every single item in your possession. He's That's like, weird. That's weird, isn't it? I'm like, it's a little bit weird, dude. It's just, <laughs> just a little bit strange. That's I'm- really weird. <laughs> it's like the, the, the closest I've come to doing that was when I put a massive collection of old stuff in a box really deep underneath the bed and I took a photograph of it and saved it to my desktop. So I thought... If I'm ever trying to find something, I can be like, is it in there? But that's like, that's only because <laughs> no, I, I know that when I'm trying to find something, I will tear apart my office. That's and get, ingenious. And, yeah. and ruin everything. And then be like, aha, I found this tiny like audio connection cable I needed. <laughs> now, like, I need to spend three hours tidying up again. Yeah, I've got a drawer of doom for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've got about 18. I just keep buying tiny boxes and tiny drawers and hope that it will make things organized. But I've just got too much bloody stuff. All the all the organize your house gurus are like, only keep the objects that keep that bring you joy and make That's sure that you pare down. It's like I have so much work stuff. Like, I can't I, even I remember her name. Stup- Marie Kondo. That's it, Marie yeah. Kondo. But I call her Colin Murray to my wife all the time. I'm like, I'm doing the Colin Murray thing. Does this bring me joy? No, I'm putting it in the bin. But I do it with her stuff as a joke uh, um, because she got quite into that. At one it point. turns out if you live with somebody who is more hoardy than you, then Marie Kondo doesn't really work. Mm. You pare your own possessions down to a beautiful minimalist selection of things that bring you joy and they still have a Sainsbury's carrier bag full of Dreamcast cables yeah I mean it really does kind of ruin the vibe yeah I can't I mean I've got like a I'm being really nudged to get rid of loads of old t-shirts and I know I need to but now I've had them all for so long and this is why I know I'm becoming like I don't need to have children to become a dad I'm, I'm becoming a dad and the it's fact a that natural process. I look at this drawer full that of old t-shirts that is a state of mind mm-hmm. and it's like I simultaneously it's like a real duality thing every time I look in this drawer of t-shirts I think there's only three t-shirts in this drawer I want to wear but then I think well which ones do you want to get rid of I'm like oh I can't get rid of any <laughs> Yeah, I found, I found a solution to that because I, uh, I I tend to gain and lose weight every few years for various reasons. And uh, so I, I constantly have a bunch of clothes I can't wear because they're too big or too small for me. And um, pregnancy didn't help with that, just BTW. No, I guess it wouldn't. I yeah. mean, it wouldn't, I mean, obviously not something you have to consider. Does pregnancy make you the, <laughs> Turn, of your, <laughs> the shape of your body? Turns out <laughs> completely. Sh- and it never goes back quite the same. Anyway, the, uh, the drawer I had of T-shirts that were from when I was living in Japan and stuff. So I had all these mad T-shirts that I loved, but mm. that I couldn't possibly wear now because A, they wouldn't fit. 
at all and b they would make me look a bit odd now right, okay. like not not kind of you know edgy but just weird okay mm-hmm. i have a great one Are you, there was this there was a shop near where i used to live that just had the best english stuff where it was just random words there's one that's just a big picture of like a big mac and it says betrayal burger taste lowest oh my god wow. oh, yeah that's it's, you bought that clearly. it's the best i've got that i've got one that has a picture of like a 60s hippie guy and a plane that says erection over and over and over just want to be loved <laughs> which <laughs> i love yeah. and i've got one, one that, for like family dues isn't mm, it yeah. got one that says pinky child um these are all like cheap ass t-shirts i bought 12 years ago I've got one that says Detective Octopus, which is a picture of an octopus with a hat on. Wow. <laughs> I used to is wear it a detective hat. I was like an old timey Western hat. That doesn't make, that makes less <laughs> I know, sense. I know, it's so good. But what's your solution it's so good. for this? Well, so I used to, I used to wear Detective Octopus whenever I was going through US customs, by the way, because it, <laughs> the guy would just look at me and he would go, Detective Octopus, and I'd be like, it's detective, for it's detective Octopus. <laughs> these are all great icebreakers. But anyway, so the, these things are, you know, they're, they're too weird for me to wear and also they're old and tiny and see-through now. So I got rid of them all but i took pictures Mm -hmm. and i took pictures and i made a little collage of them and put them in my you know photo albums from you know my my photo archive so that when i'm feeling nostalgic about those things i can be like oh do you remember that amazing t-shirt yeah because that's what it serves i'm never going to wear it it's just in a drawer to remind me of fun times that i had or you could like you could have vacuum packed them in a plastic thing and hid them underneath the floorboards (laughs) and just left them (laughs) not weird at all future generations to discover these amazing artifacts god they were trying to decipher the meaning of each and every one (laughs) Uh, imagine if it became your Rosetta Stone. (laughs) (laughs) Future aliens trying to work out what the hell. (laughs) Betrayal burger. Who were these? Is this a ritual? Are you sure Uh, that word translates as betrayal? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't make sense. Taste lowest? Why? Anyway, that's a fantastic, that's this month's t-shirt tangent. It's Um, it's a good thing to do though, if you have possessions that have sentimental value, but you don't really want them. Photograph them. Photograph them and have them. Because all you really want is to remember them, right? Exactly. You want to remember what they look, you you want to remember the times you had with them. And there's way more efficient ways to remember things yes interesting time efficient and space efficient ways to remember things good tangent <laughs> some <I think>. fantastic <laughs> tips for people it's not just conversations about video games and video games culture mm. it's it's rules to live by <laughs> anyway i'm gonna ask you now chris about um what you're working on at the moment with people make games which is the fantastic shiny <laughs> new thing and i'd just like to give a shout out to the fact that as of today, and we are pulling you away mm-hmm. from your first proper working day as a, a duo, but um, Annie, who does the illustrations and the animations for People Make Games, is now full-time. Yeah, it's, it's massive. I, like We sort of can't believe that it's happened already. That was all, always the plan from, like, uh, we must have been, I think we, we were planning People Make Games at least six months before it happened in various storms and we were always I for one knew it would happen so I'm, I'm pleased to see it happen but i'm not surprised in the slightest because you're both fantastic oh, really great. looking forward to the podcast we have in a few months about how to work with your partner yes yeah <laughs> i'll appreciate that yeah um yeah so there is actually a, a really big one we're working on at the moment which involves trying to join a cult but i don't i, I don't think we can really talk about it too much because i'm worried about the person it's complicated as well yeah. okay well we could talk a little bit briefly then about um one you did recently mm-hmm. which is the most chris brand thing in the world <laughs> when you decided to do a deep dive about time command yeah. a television show in the uk <laughs> in which people use uh i believe is it the, it's the total war engine right yeah, yeah to yeah. pretend right. that they are commanders mm-hmm. of real oldie timey yeah oldie timey is not really it's ancient battles yeah. mostly right yeah so the um the whole thing about yeah that show is that they they began by using the the Rome Total War game basically to that was the TV show and I bloody love that game. But um, at no point during the the show itself do they 
say that it's a video game and uh, I don't some of the contestants I'm not sure even if they knew that they were playing a game so did I don't know they were on TV <laughs> <laughs> That's what I they were captured by did they think it was Richard real? Hammond um, yeah so the, part of that is because the the BBC don't allow you to um, like give undue prominence is what they call it to any product so if they said Total War too many times like you it's okay yeah. referencing that Total War exists but if you're saying it in every episode other wars are available other wars are available um, yeah and I think I just needed to get it out of my system like why that show exists <laughs> yeah. um, partly because for the third series it came back for three episodes a short lived reboot we applied to be on that we applied we? to be on it we and, didn't get through and I, oh, I I'm saying that would have been good content I know right <laughs> the thing is well what I what I think this was was a, uh, a journey of self realisation in the fact that I'm not sure I don't know if we would have been the right people for it because I think I would have got too much into the fact that it was a video game and play, tried to play it like Total War and you know like I would have wanted them to turn skirmish mode on on my javelins and like I'd get into the minutiae of how the game is played and that is not Good no. television. Nobody wants to see that. I would have gone full mad general. <laughs> it would have been fine. I'd have been like murder them all. Yeah, but I basically I, I've I needed to come to terms with why we weren't accepted onto Time Commanders wow. Series Three. I didn't realize. You did a whole document. And so I left my old job, started a Patreon, <laughs> and eventually. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Got three episodes in before getting to to the heart of the matter. What have we tapped into? Here? <laughs> it's been a journey of self-realization. Why don't the Time Commanders love me? Yeah. I love them so much. And, <laughs> and it's fine because yeah, uh, if you if you do watch the episode, it turns out that. The, for them, it, for, for the person that created it, it was never a video games TV show. For me, it is because I love Total War. But for them, it was a it was a show about the idea of taking people from the 21st century, putting them into an ancient battle and seeing like by having watched like TV and watched, I don't know, like Sharp or like. Yeah, how much do you actually know the, about? Yeah. Oh, stuff. Yeah. Like how, yeah, how much just by osmosis have we picked up about uh, how all those things actually worked and would how you be able to... it is flat out wrong? Exactly, right. That's and the main thing I took away from it is people being like, I've seen this, mm -hmm. I know how to do this and it's like, actually, you don't. Yep. It was like a really cool way of covertly teaching people history. Yeah, and uh, also one of the things I found out about that, that show which I really like is that um, although it might look like when you watch it that the enemy forces are being controlled by the, the computer, actually... There were two Creative Assembly employees. It was it was the founder of Creative Assembly and the person that wrote the AI for Total War were actually controlling it in the back room. And if they didn't like the contest contestants too much, there were some spin doctors <laughs> from London who were just awful. They would absolutely try their best to smash them, which I, I appreciate knowing. So that they just myself. bump up the difficulty if they didn't like the contestants. It wasn't difficulty. They were literally controlling the units. Each other, right? uh, yeah. So, wow. but, no, but they weren't told that because um, they want to keep up the facade that it was some like, I don't know what they told the contestants. A neutral arbiter, an yeah. AI yeah. doing this. It's I guess it's obeying your every whim. Voice no, controlled. it was actually like a couple of Two guys. at times quite petty men in the background being like, oh, I didn't like that guy. Let's just, we can't have him win this. That'd be awful. Um, so yeah, I, I've fallen that into... That makes it much better. <laughs> yeah, it does a little bit. Um, I've fallen into a rabbit hole of of certain like game TV shows now. I like Yesterday we played Nightmare Live together. Yes. So Nightmare, for those of you who uh, don't know, uh, many Americans, I think, it was a show that was uh, 80s, 90s, I think, where basically it was like using chroma key, green screen, blue screen to effectively have a show in which a child uh, <laughs> would have a oh, weird wow. helmet put over their head so they couldn't see anything. And then it would be like a text adventure, except they wouldn't be putting this character into these kind of painted rooms and scenarios with other green screen characters coming in who would be, might be dangerous knights or wizards mm -hmm. or people doing riddles. And then they would have the rest of their friends, and they'd be, often be four kids from a school, would sit behind a, 
a big wooden chest and um, have to give them advice and tell them, you're in a room and there's a weird table and there's a key on it and there's a goblin dancing and playing a flute. Mm -hmm. And then they have to be literally guiding this blind child saying, go forward, go forward, turn left. And it was incredibly tense and frightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's LARPing basically isn't it larping Except with a blind with a, boy yeah you're larping with a blind person and i think the it was always a boy screen. i think it was always very very nerdy boys as far as i can remember i'm sure there were exceptions oh no i, I think, had a I think, friend I think, in the, yeah there were okay good. There, were there were girls i had i had a friend in the playground who swore blind she'd been on nightmare good Swore blind of course nobody believed her oh. uh, it's a weird shame because she probably i've always wanted to know i think <laughs> i think about her sometimes i'm like what if she was on her she was just bullshitting <laughs> but it used to I, I nightmare was too scary for me when i was little oh yeah it, it is i yeah. saw it when i was maybe five or six and it was there's there's a bit that i remember very very vividly where the blind child is on a kind of led chessboard with a big cloaked black knight figure oh, and they yeah. have to like take steps towards each other and around and you know basically if they if the if their friends fuck up yeah the child gets they killed, kind of consumed them in the cape yeah they, they get they were, wrapped in the cape like a 12 foot tall feature yeah. that would like walk it was like they walk as a chess piece onto their place and just cover them with yeah the, they did kind of the envelop them in their cloak terrible. and that and was the game gone. over and it was very very scary there was another there were because there were a few of these like larping tv shows that were on in the early 90s mm -hmm. there was another one that I, I, I it was one of those things i feel like i might have made up Do you remember raven that's a later raven around, yes yeah. i remember raven. so raven had some like I, we were we like annie and i when we got back last night after already having experienced nightmare live we're like we should watch raven was it as good uh, like not really but they didn't blind the children no and that was, is, that was, was which was a joke pointed out by the, <laughs> the guys who run nightmare live and i should just say nightmare live nightmare live is very funny they're a great crew doing it i'd really recommend going along oh, to one of the shows because they're fantastic there was one that was it was more like um it was more like crystal maze style but the the idea was that the children had all been dropped off on this planet and they had to get through all these puzzle rooms oh, i remember that or they'd just be left behind. Yeah. I thought that was real. I was seven. I thought there was just a planet somewhere with all these abandoned children on it. It's a great start to a piece of fiction though, isn't it? Yeah. The society formed from these failed children. <laughs> children Crystal. not smart enough to get through basic puzzles and have to fend Crystal for themselves. Crystal Maze spinoff has spawned a civilization on Mars. God, that's a great writing prompt. Like yeah, that just start one. there. But it was it was very sinister that show, mm -hmm. and um, I think it was yeah it was interesting. And again, it was it was very difficult, and was pointed out to us that Nightmare was so incredibly difficult that nobody ever really beat it. And on the few occasions they did, it was pointed out did, one of the times they get a prize even. I that can't remember, but I remember that apparently one time they they beat it literally just because it was Christmas. Like mm -hmm. Father Christmas Aww. turned up yeah. in Nightmare, and they were like, "You've done it," and it's like <laughs> really. Um, but yeah, so we should say that when we were playing it, um, we were the basically the the directors, I guess. Once Guides. We had trying to help. a friend you of yours, Clark. Yes, that's right. It was actually the 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 chest from the series. We were told. Yeah, it was the same. Problem. Um, and yeah, we had uh, Clark wearing the helmet, sort of on a stage with. Um, yeah, like live actors and then various props that we had to sort of walk him around, which is surprisingly tedious to get like to, to just right step forward once then turn right. Then just, yeah, avoid, there's, no, there's a goblin there. Just sidestep left. And but then, also deeply intense. Yeah. Like having somebody who cannot see, admittedly our friend Clark was kind of cheating and could see a little mm -hmm. bit, but he was cheating because he couldn't hear us because of the reverb in the room, which seems like a reasonable reason mm -hmm. to take matters into your own hands. But having done it before in a setting where the person genuinely just couldn't see, Having someone who is a knight in full armor swinging a sword very slowly but very dangerously and having to guide someone to stop them from being hit by this is terrifying. Mm, that's, yeah, I'm not sure how you intense. can take this game design learning and put it into video games. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like having somebody's 
what I feels think, like their life in your hands. I guess hands. like um, what's keep tr- talking and nobody explodes. Like those kind of games yeah, where you absolutely where someone sees something different to the rest of the room. What strikes me, yeah, what strikes me is the learning there is having limited limited senses in a, mm-hmm. in a game. Like you don't know something, you can't see something, you can't hear something. Mm-hmm. And so many of the games of that era were like call in games where it would be. Uh, the, Jump left, left, you know the, the limit, right. You know the oh, Falcon Hoof. Uh, yeah, Falcon Hoof is ridiculously well observed. Yeah, it's so good. I don't know how much that has influenced Nightmare Live, but the, like I was just thinking about Let Me Show the entire time. Like the, the yeah, the pickle character, the like the helpful elf, helpful elf that yeah. nobody likes. Kill just jester. kill jester, kill yeah. jester, <laughs> get rid of jester. Oh, it was great. Um, you got to be here the whole time. Yeah, I ah, oh, and the the fact that. Uh, like when so basically that was what they had as a, as their sketch in, during Nightmare Live is that that pickle came on and but both the audience and the other actors just turned against her. It was it was brutal. Again, brutal for the actor. Yeah. I uh, there was actually a BBC Scotland nightmare like sci-fi esque video game inspired nightmare style show. Oh yeah. On I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. A friend of mine wrote it. But yeah, they're kind of reviving them a little bit now. Oh, okay. There's a bit of interest. I think it's because all of us are 30 now. And that's mm-hmm. officially... I figured out... I'm turning 30 on Thursday, incidentally. Happy birthday. Listeners. And I figured out that it's the age when people start making stuff for your nostalgia. Mm. 30. Oh, yeah. And so suddenly you start looking around. Every pub I've been in for the last year or so, I've been like, God, this music's good. This is yep. a good playlist. And then I think about it. And I'm like, this is all stuff from 2010, isn't it? <laughs> This is all stuff I liked when I was at university. Yeah, with the occasional from here yeah. on out. Yeah, with the occasional new thing that I also appreciate in there. And it's and it's yeah. So you find that the world starts specifically targeting you for nostalgia. Yeah. When you get to about twenty. Oh, and it works. Oh my god, it you works! Get, it's terrifying. Kind of they're, they're remaking Buffy, and I got oh, irate. God. I got irate about it, and I'm like, oh, I suddenly understand what the Star Wars yeah. people are on about because <laughs> I, I felt genuinely like viscerally upset at the idea that they would remake my Buffy. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, because you know, obviously, all the things that people get irate about are basically male nerd things from the 80s which is slightly too early for me but now girl nerd things from the 90s are the things that are getting targeted for nostalgia money and it's yeah i'm I'm suddenly comes back when there's money yeah that's right bad i was ready player one on a a plane the other day i couldn't watch all of it because it was just absolute dross but it amazed me that the central message for a lot of that seemed to be advertising is bad but endlessly monetizing 80s culture is good. I was like, really? Right. This is there's, this is the least self-aware thing. There are so thing many cultural seen. dissonances in Ready Player One. It's unbelievable. It's, yeah, I mean, it's almost a you know, it's almost like The Room. It's like the worst yeah, book ever. Right? <laughs> it's secretly like, the worst book ever written. I, I just I was watching it thinking I'm expecting not to get on with this very well, but I was just aghast. I was like, this is stunningly poor. Mm. Just just no awareness of itself at all. It was just amazing. but that, but then that's a commentary on itself. I know it's got no awareness of itself. It's so meta. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, um, talking of reruns, can you talk to us about talk about something that you've done on The Guardian recently that you particularly think is amazing? I wanted to talk a bit about interviewing because we had last month on The Guardian, we had uh, the first interview in two years with Sean Murray. Yes. Mm, and yes. Eurogamer and Waypoint did have interviews with Sean Murray as well, but mine was at nine in the morning <laughs> and it was the first one. But anyway, um, the process of trying to sort something like that out, mm. like trying to speak to somebody who it's easier when you're, when you're trying to interview people in video game world, it's much easier when they're people who've made old games, mm-hmm. which is why you can read loads of brilliant, funny, almost tell all articles about games that are made in the eighties and nineties. When you're trying to get people to talk about anything that's current still and that people's jobs rely on and that money is made from, it is exceptionally hard to interview people mm-hmm. in a way that's remotely interesting. And it isn't just somebody who's saying a lot of talking points and 
we've had three profiles in the last few weeks. We've had Masahiro Sakurai from Smash Brothers. We've had um, Hidetaka Miyazaki, um, who obviously I've spoken to many times, having done the Dark Souls book and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but we were talking to him about Deracine, which is the PlayStation VR uh, adventure game about fairies that he's doing. And talking to him in that context was very different than talking to him in Dark Souls. And, Why? And <laughs> well, the interesting thing about Miyazaki, the first time I ever... Sorry, I'm repeating myself for people who were listening years ago. Um, but the most interesting thing about talking to him was that the first time, it was just before Dark Souls came out. So he was a guy who'd made, who you know, kind of... He's been doing muscled his way he's into been doing Demon's stuff Souls. for a long time. Yeah, it's quite similar, and no one had really ever. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, because he only started working at FromSoft on Armored Core. Okay. Uh, in the mid two thousands, and then he kind of ended up kind of shuffling onto Demon's Souls because Demon's Souls was a failing project within the company, and he kind of thought, well, maybe I can, maybe. But I, can I didn't realize he started in up on Armored Core. Yeah, um, and so yeah, he was a planner, like a, that mm -hmm. Japanese version a of a game designer. Armored Core has a lot in common with Dark Souls. Quite a lot it going doesn't on with it. land in the same way right. because sci-fi is harder to grok. Yeah, and you would have thought that the person who made Demon's Souls might have been working on Kingsfield, but no. Uh, but he had a kind of great appreciation for From Software's back catalogue. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he kind of muscled his way on, on Demon's Souls and ended up directing it because it was a failed project and nobody cared whether it lived or died. And then, of course, Demon's Souls picked up slowly and eventually mm -hmm. led to dark souls so the first time i interviewed it was right before dark souls came out he couldn't really make eye contact you know he was very shy didn't like speaking very much um you'd kind of leave him and he'd sort of be silent for 25 seconds and then talk for five minutes about some quite obscure thing that was going on in his head uh, and then obviously since then he's become the president of from software you know it's not just about dark souls now like he's the president of FromSoft, so the company he's much more um He's much more media trained. He's much more presidential. He still has that kind of incredible turn of phrase that he has sometimes. Mm -hmm. When you really get him into something on Bloodborne or Deracine as well, it turns out his main inspiration for Deracine was a Victorian writer who wrote under a female name, Fiona MacLeod, and wrote about Celtic fairy tales. Um, and wow. it's the most obscure reference. You know, he said, you know, I asked him about some of, some of his reference points for it, and he mentioned Fiona MacLeod. And I went and looked up, and it's the pen name of a little known Victorian author who wrote about folklore. You know, this is, he's very, you know, he, he goes and finds very weird things to get obsessed with. Um, but now you speak to him, and he's, he's a company president, and he speaks like a company president. He's very confident. You know, he mm -hmm. wears nice suits, he looks you in the eye, and it's, it's like a different person. And that's really, really fascinating to see. Um, and when you're trying to talk to someone like Sean Murray, you know, Hello Games is made millions out of No Man's Sky. Yeah. And went through something really, really horrible. Mm -hmm. And it's very understandable that they don't want to jeopardize their standing and, you know, money in people's jobs, basically, by talking to the press and, and putting a foot wrong. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when you when you talk to people who make games, they very, especially the Activision is, is a big one for this. You talk to the COD developers. They've all been through media training. They all say word for word the same things to everyone. And you'll notice when you read previews and stuff like that or or things with quote that the sentences are literally the same and valve i have heard i can't verify this but i've heard that valve work with a media training service well basically they will talk about what they want to talk about and then play it back to themselves and they will learn their lines but mm -hmm. their lines will be with the ums and the uhs and the you know the when they're talking naturally yep. they'll literally listen back wow. to it and learn it like that but they'll learn the lines that way and so it sounds natural, but isn't. I mean, I've, I used to work in PR, actually. was I've been present in mm. those sessions. I've been present in sessions where they've brought in people externally to media train people. Mm. Um, how, how long a process is that? What's, what? It depends. It's a couple of days um, workshop, usually. Yeah, sometimes it's a couple of days. And often, you know, can be more, can be less. 
but it usually is specifically for people usually just who are people who do what people want them to do and it's difficult with this because people are always like oh i hate it when people just give sound bites i hate it when people just say the same thing in every interview but then actually it's always the people who don't do that and who just talk to people and just are candid that always end up being chewed out and yeah, in their life. Yeah. And, you and know, it's bad for the company, but it's also bad for them long run as well. Exactly. So I mean, there, there is definitely something to be said for media training as a concept. But yeah. the fact is that when you're trying to write interesting things about people, it's really, really hard. Yeah. Because sometimes even if you get someone great who should be great, but you'll talk to them and you'll find that the you're just not getting a conversation. You're not getting anything that looks interesting on the page. Or the worst, when you get that amazing anecdote. And they've given it to everybody. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like, That's their anecdote that they've been. I mean, I remember to. actually one of the, the the most fun trips I ever went on as a journalist was I went to Halo Fest in Seattle, which was a one-off event, which they were like, <laughs> hey, well, maybe do this every year. But it was basically Microsoft's way of trying to be like, we're passing Halo to 343. Please don't hate <laughs> us forever, community. So it was a community shindig uh, in a place near PAX Prime, which was basically their way of just trying to like really PR it. And it had lots of panels of people from Bungie and from 343 sitting on stages together being like, oh, this is going to be yeah. fine. Yeah, my pal here. It was the most obvious like uh, PR campaign I've ever seen in my life. But we were there to cover it. And it meant that I was sitting through uh, about eight hours of panels every day, specifically about Halo. And um, one of the most amazing things was, I think, a guy called Dan, I can't remember his second name, who was an executive producer or something, I think, at Bungie or Activision or 343. I do not remember. But he was the guy who was running through the demo of Halo 4, I think. And it was amazing because we watched him do it. Like, because they did it before most of the Q&As. First of all, a demo of the new game. Okay. And every time it was like clockwork, but it was crazy because it, it was like clockwork, even with the bits of going, oh, that, you know, um, all the bits that felt like they were yeah, natural yeah. little bits. All and, those E3 presentations. And it was this thing of being mm-hmm. like, this guy is a robot. Like, it was frightening. Mm-hmm. But that's, it's the job and it sucks. But then, you know, you see what happens with No Man's Sky where you have a guy who just has conversations with people and doesn't behave unreasonably in saying about like what they're talking about, what the scope of the game they want is. And, you know, that's how the productive production works. Yeah. You, know, you, you have your aims and then maybe you don't manage everything. And right? Sean Murray is a good example of, of this problem. You know, he talked off the cuff, you know, he, yeah. he, did, he was a company of, I think it was six people. Mm-hmm. And you know, they don't have that many more of them now, even though they're a multi-million dollar company now. There's still only 15, 20 of them. There's not many people there. Mm-hmm. And they don't have, I mean, Sony didn't kind of envelop him in their machine. They didn't have media training, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the problem that you have. But then, of course, two years down the line, you don't know whether you're talking to the same Sean Murray no, or whether you're talking no. to one who's now... Had you interviewed him beforehand? We'd spoken, but we'd not... Oh, oh we'd uh, so, before so, No Man's Gone, yeah. yeah. yeah um, but we, we'd spoken in the intervening two years because I was trying to get him to talk to Kotaku about it. I, I, for I think like, everyone, including me, has been trying course. to get the interview. I mean, every, every, everyone. Yeah. Everyone. So, you know, I, I was... And when when it was finally time, it was because it suited the studio. It's because mm-hmm. No Man's Sky next, next was coming out. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time you have to kind of accept as a journalist that if someone wants to talk to you and if they're presenting a kind of, all right, here, here it is, it's the candid, it's time to have the candid conversation. There's a reason for that. They, even and that's like fine. every single interview, there's the, the interviewee has a reason for yeah. doing it. Sometimes that that reason can, can be... Can, completely fine and you don't really need to think about it but there's always a reason exactly you know what but, that, case, but that's okay 100 percent justified yeah and the honestly, thing is almost always it's almost always justified you know it's yep. not dishonest to because i mean you've got to bear in mind you know that the press isn't always kind this mm-hmm. is the thing I, and, I don't think in this circumstances like the press uh were owed any favors at all uh, and the fact actually like i found a lot of the discourse that followed on from these interviews 
to be frankly disgusting. Um, and the fact that uh, there were some people reporting on this quite openly as being an idea that this, the fact that they had made the game way better and poured resources for years to really advance the game in huge amounts of way, uh, acted as a, a redemption mm-hmm. and acted as like, oh, they've done right. They've, and it's as done if, right by the fact, as it's, if it's like the they fact didn't do right in the first these place. people yeah. had been the targets of death threats and mm, unbelievable yeah. vitriol for years was in some way justified. Yeah, do you know what? It's, it's about them. It's not about the, the it doing right by the players. You know, for me, the story was very much about about Sean and about about those people and about what they've been through and some of the stuff they've been through he wouldn't you know he didn't want in, no. in the paper for obvious reasons but it's it's about as bad as it can get yep. yeah exactly and uh, you know as, as he said you know in in the in the article there's a detail about you know the police were involved mm-hmm. you know this this is not trivial no and the fact that the story was in some ways made about the player community yeah, and, and it, what they deserved it, was mm-hmm. a bit like it's it's um, honestly I honestly find it disgusting and it's the fact that it's like you know in a way it's they were kind of in a position then, where maybe they had to but then that's again. also how like they, that's, they, that's how sean would present it i've got to say you know yeah. the studio would present it as oh we're just so dedicated to our players we love making fun well, things for them because yeah, that's how you to. have to do it and also they have to purely because of the fact that they were put into a position whereby if they didn't continue to work on this game and make it better then because of the position they've been put in which wasn't fair mm. their mm-hmm. reputation would be destroyed yeah. forever yeah whatever the next thing they made was so the idea that like, they'd done yeah. this and it's like ah oh, well done you've done good is it's like no it was this whole thing was duress we're now we're now ha- we now have this wonderful game that you can play and anyone who already bought it can get back into and have this wonderful improved game fantastic thing and that's great but the idea that this came out of a sense of goodness yeah they wanted duress they had a gun to their head for two years yeah like they didn't have a choice and, and they sure they probably sure they probably wanted to do those yeah, things yeah, of course but they you did. know but i mean they never they, say that they yeah, had the, to this do is it, it the circumstances of it so you know you're never you're never getting the full story from any interview that you do no. and the thing you've got to do like as a as a journalist is try and find a way to make whatever it is that you they want to talk about. Yep. You know, it's not about, you know, when you're interviewing someone, it's not about trying to get them to say things they're not supposed to yeah, say. No. A, that's not doing any only favours. B, it's not going to work. Just, and it's just not how people... Yeah, you, yeah, tell, so, you tell the best truth you can, it will never be the yeah. the full truth. It's always the truth. And, and you know, if, if you're... If, you know, we're not doing we're not doing crime reporting here. You, you know, you we're not going and talking to every single person who was involved with the thing to get a kind of picture of exactly what happened and what the facts were. Because, you know, frankly, most of the time it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. Because what's actually... You know, what you're doing as somebody who's you know, as a journalist who's, who's interviewing is presenting, a, is, is making a story and you want the story to be factually correct and you want the story to present, you know, what, what has happened, but you're only ever going to get the people who are willing to talk to you about mm-hmm. it. And that in itself is going to skew it. Yeah. I used to think, I remember thinking years ago um, when these kind of profile style articles, they're not that old in video games. You know, the, the idea of a profile style article about a person who makes games is maybe six years old. We used to have them in you know, OXM a lot, but they would be just page fillers. Like, because, you know... Like Q&A style. If yeah. it was online, no one's going to read them. But mm. uh, as a feature with some nice photography, like, you know, an interview with, mm. I don't know, you know, whatever egotist was popular at that point, would be something which you'd happily put mm. in a magazine, be a four-page spread maybe. Um, a good way of kind of basically you've had a preview of a game, let's try and fill some more pages with the same yeah. studio visit. But for me, it started with um, the first one I remember being a, a big deal really was... Uh, the New York Times's profile of Notch yep. before Notch went full Notch. Mm-hmm. And then there was um, another couple in The Guardian when Keith was editor there. Mm. And they've, I, I really, uh, I'm trying to do more of them now. The fact is that they're not the most popular articles you'll do. You'll get more hits from writing an opinion on something. Yeah, But it's not about that necessarily. It's about kind of presenting an, like, an insight that you're going to get into a person that's not just about the video game that they're making but trying to be a bit about them as a person as well mm. this is very funny when you're trying to talk to Japanese developers because they're not used to this at all yeah. I remember trying to talk to um, the Masahiro Sakurai profiles I think pretty good it's not very much about Smash Bros it's mostly about him and um, 
trying to talk to him about like his childhood and you know where he grew up and what his parents were like and stuff he was just like why are you asking me these things <laughs> don't you want to know about the new characters that's, in smash that, brothers any other response than that and i start to worry you're getting dishonest i think one of the big long-term problems that video games has is the fact that because it's under working through the system of capitalism in which people who often do very very well are maybe not good people you end up having this weird self-mythologizing where i think like all of these things about we've had like all of these pieces about Hideo Kojima or um, like who's the what's this guy? Ken Levine is a really good example of this mm. where Ken Levine has done so many interviews talking about himself but honestly I've heard so many things about Ken Levine over the years that I'm not going to repeat because of libel but if you want to know about these people you don't ask them mm. and I think that a lot of the people you know and Peter Molyneux is another very good example like these the people who are more than happy to talk about themselves and their past and do these profiles if you really want to know about who these people are. You talk to the people they work with. talk to the people they work with. Yes, always you talk to the people they work with. And I think that actually sometimes these these pieces can be almost irresponsible in terms of pervading this. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And it's funny with like, I was really disappointed with No Man's Sky in the fact that like, I felt like a lot of the conversations about this, the beginning and end should have been, we now have this wonderful game Mm -hmm. that was fundamentally not not worth what it cost. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. And any other like, the, re- the redemption story isn't is just yeah unbelievably irresponsible. I don't think it was worth what it cost either. No, yep, absolutely not. But yeah, it's, and it's, it makes it's, me want to play it more though because it's like the it's already been paid for. Mm. Like the cost is already there. But let's say as a as a, as a journalist, you're always aware of the um yeah you're always aware of the agenda when you're interviewing someone mm-hmm. and trying to get around that is really really hard and at times impossible. So like the art of interviewing in you know when we're talking about interviewing people about products essentially they're being made. Is really hard one. That's yeah. one I've been trying to get better at for for years, but it's it's really difficult to do. And so many of those costs are invisible to us yeah. until mm. you really, you know, dig deeper. But then you also have the question. Sorry, I was just going to say you're totally right about the the difficulty that comes with um, talking to people that are like uh, about a game or a project that is still part of their lives. It it changes that conversation with with people make games. We we very rarely do like modern stories because. It's too they're, hard. They're, they're, yeah, they're just not ready to sell them. And, and they're still living it. Yeah, right? exactly. Oh, like if they if they do talk about stuff, there's you know they're they're maybe going to put like and there's a negative side to it. They they're going to jeopardize the project or the people they work with, and that's not a risk that people are going to be willing to take. Yeah, which is something. And if they are willing to take it, that you have to ask like why? What 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 else is going on here? And it's really easy to criticize that from outside. Mm-hmm. I think, and I certainly used to think, why is nobody asking the hard questions? Mm-hmm. very very good reasons lots of very good reasons why it's not that they're not asking them it's that they're not being answered and it's for obvious reasons and we're only really at a point now where you can tell the real stories about things that happened years ago because yep. video games just weren't around for that long yeah. but yeah it is interesting I, I, you know you could probably get the real story about something like bioshock infinite now mm-hmm. you know and i've heard some amazing stories about that oh yes yes um, <laughs> but yeah you so you have to wait five to ten years really for for if, if that's if that's what you're wanting for it so it's, it's i think as a as a journalist, it's the art of interviewing is all about trying to ha- how to figure out how to how to marry the agenda of the person you're interviewing with the interests of the readers, and then also mm. just making something that's interesting to read. And, and the it's interest hard to of do the those. readers feels to me the biggest uh, problem in the fact that uh, it's not even that people want to read about this stuff. It's a lot of the conversations that these things lead to. Just people aren't ready for, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that's that's difficult. And the only way people can get ready for this is by people not being irresponsible in the most short time. So. I think yeah. ideally that kind of reporting should aim to start a conversation. I think that sometimes there's a there's a very uh, there's a very strong storytelling temptation to kind of tie up a story and wrap mm-hmm. a little bow on it and be like here like like the redemption arc for you know because that's natural. That's exactly. a natural storytelling urge for anybody who's reading I've, I've had to grow up to do. That. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's so that. hard not to do it, isn't it? Well, to it kind of put your own little you. concluding paragraph yeah. on the end. It also reassures you that the problem's gone. Like it was amazing to see people talking at E3 this year that like the idea that because we had lots more games with female protagonists meant that the problems of Gamergate 
would pass. Mm-hmm. It's like, are you absolutely, have you lost it? Like this idea that like, it was never about female protagonists in video games. It was about actual people, humans who work in the industry. And mm-hmm. I, but it's, it's cognitive dissonance. Nobody likes to live with, with shadows hanging over them. And if you can work out a way in your head that you go, oh, this whole thing's wrapped up. Yeah. I don't have to think about this ever it's again. It's a completely human People thing to do. People love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so human, mm. but you've got to fight it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <Yeah. laughs> if you're doing you that, best. it's bad. Yep. <laughs> anyway, um, we should probably wrap up this uh, this podcast around now. Cool. Um, but yeah, you've got some great stuff regarding uh, a cult. Yes. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yeah. yeah but hopefully it's going to be next month. It's just a lot of work and maybe some traveling and probably a bit enough more than we can chew. Wow. But that's that cool. should be fun. Yeah. What about you, Kaz? What are you working on at the moment? Is it still secret, secret? Honestly, we're coming up to the point where I'm just going to have to review a bunch of video games. Because oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> lots of video games are going to start coming out. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, we got um, we got a thing coming out about um, Grand Theft Auto Online's new mode. Interesting. Because um, you know, they've like got huge, but yeah, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, they've got um, you know real DJs basically playing sets mm-hmm. in the game. And, you know, it's interesting because the whole point of clubbing is sweat and people and noise and dirt and it's just a, it's a really real physical thing I to do sweat and be noisy at home <laughs> like how the hell do you then translate the kind of like the actual experience of underground club music how the fuck do you put that in a video game like well, i think it's impossible so anyway here yeah. we go that's there's a, there's a feature about that people that we'll have tried and the answer is usually you can't yes <laughs> yes so how do you approximate it in gta i am my mind is blown by gta online it's it's so popular it's absurd how popular it is and again, I live I live in the space where I'm like, oh, it's a shame they've not done single player DLC, but yeah. it's because they're making so yeah. much money and so the, many millions of people are The whole studio has happy. changed because of it as well. Yeah. Of it. They just, yeah. Rockstar, there's a story no one will be able to tell yeah. for ages. You, you hear things about Rockstar all of the time, but obviously the, the company being terrifyingly That'll litigious. That would be like yeah. the Mickey Mouse thing. It's like one of those things where it will just be legally protected <laughs> forever. Leslie, the, the court documents of Leslie Benzies, uh, who was fired not fired he left mm-hmm. he left he he yeah. alleges okay. that he left unwillingly yep okay. um that he left rockstar games unwillingly but anyway some of the some of the court documents that are filed in that case are, are interesting reading for anybody who's interested in the story behind that studio i'm gonna shut up <laughs> okay yeah that seems fair that seems fair because label laws are weird anyway um yeah let's wrap this up i'm still working on cool ghost episode three it's taking a ridiculous amount of time um and anyone who's interested in that i can only apologize i'm having to reshoot some stuff because uh, something i'd scripted and then filmed has not really come out how i wanted so i'm having to do it again um but that's life yep. uh, also actually quite interestingly if um you live or are visiting london in the next couple of months i believe i'm not sure, not sure how long it's going on for but there's an exhibition that vna about video games uh which i've been involved with a little bit especially because they've got a part about bloodborne where i actually have oh, done cool. a help worked with them on a little thing about bloodborne where it's got me doing voiceover about the combat it's pretty basic it's basically like watching a little basic youtube video that i might make about bloodborne but in a much more sparse and <laughs> uh, normal people friendly way but that's been quite exciting that opens um, on the 5th of september doesn't it yeah previews on the 5th of september i think it's running for a couple months absolutely yeah. and i was happy to do that because i just think the bloodborne is the most amazing thing in the world and if i can help convince or explain to the public why it's exciting then that's a, a service i'm more than happy to provide excellent um, but yeah we'll be back next month roughly with another episode of dark souls and again finally i want to apologize for uh if this has had any weird audio gremlins, because I think I have a problem with an XLR cable that I was unable to fix, and <laughs> uh, it may be odd. What I, I really like about it is you can hear the rain at one point, which is the just hearing wonderful. the rain was nice. I yeah, I was that, really yeah. enjoying this. Yeah, the rain, I can't do anything about, but I can... That's nice. Another. It's a nice yeah. audio backdrop. Mm. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> Relax yourself. <laughs> I used to listen to rain in my headphones in the office when I worked at IGN. 
Oh, just to drown just out to drown out IGN. Just to drown out life. Yeah. I used to watch Netflix in the bath. We've all had our problems. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.